Lifetime, keeping you informed and inspired. We love God. We ought to be able to talk about Him. Getting you started on your day. With the latest in breaking news and information. From the Vatican to the White House and everything in between. It's serious. It's fun. It's your Catholic drive time. Now, here's your host, Joe McClain. Christ. Welcome back to Catholic Drive Time, keeping you informed and inspired. I'm your host, Joe McClain. So good to be on with you. Praise be to God. Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. It's still Christmas. So uh, Happy New Year and Merry Christmas to you. January the 2nd, 2023, the very first Catholic Drive Time of the new year. And it's also the memorial of Saints Basil the Great and Gregory Nazianzen, bishops and doctors of the church. May they pray for us. We're going to have a great first program for you today. A lot to cover. In fact, Dr. Kwasniewski is going to be on the program. Adrian sat down with him, what, a couple months ago now, Adrian, right? Yeah, over a month. Well, yeah. about maybe 50 days, 60 days ago. Uh, do you remember anything of the conversation at this point? I know we talked about the Mass. Okay. Uh, we mm-hmm. talked about sacred scripture. Mm-hmm. And we talked about Latin. So this is going to be a brand new conversation for you two. It really is. You have forgotten it. It really is. Well, uh, we're talking about a response to the crisis of rupture. In the church, Dr. Kwasniewski is going to join us at 15 past this hour and stay with us through the top of the hour. Uh, Coming up in the next hour, for those of you that can join us in our second hour, you can always hang out on our website. But uh, nonetheless, Al Smith is going to be back. Yeah. We're asking the fundamental question. We just had him on. It was the last episode of the new year and the first episode of this year. Uh, We're going to talk to him about why Fulton Sheen is not yet a saint. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And... Mm-hmm. Here's a good question that we answer, or I guess Al answers that we don't answer. Okay. Mm-hmm. Here's a good question. Yeah. Was mm-hmm. Fulton Sheen I see. secretly oh. a Dominican friar? Now, don't start Ooh. rumors, okay? Don't. Should you have, I think you should have the tinfoil miter on. The truth comes out. Uh, or Al Smith reveals hmm. whether or not Fulton Sheen was, in fact, a secret Dominican. I know there are tens of... Okay, two or three people in the world who are asking that question right now. Um, if we count all the <laughs> Dominicans in the world who are asking that question, <laughs> there's at least seven. Uh, so they're fighting over him, is what you're saying. Yeah, they really are. People are like, mm-hmm. no, no, he definitely was a secret Dominican. A secret so, Dominican? Yeah. Why would he be secret? If, and why not just be an out-and-out Dominican? Well, not, it wasn't like a secret as in like he was mm-hmm. keeping it a secret. Mm-hmm. It was more like he did it, and it just like he became a third-order Dominican, and then okay. didn't really tell anybody. wasn't a big deal. Got it. So it was on the DS. So it wasn't like he was throwing out Dominican's hand signals. No, no. Those, those selfies. we don't share with people. We oh, keep I those. See. Yeah. Okay. You have to be first order Dominican to know about right, that. Right. Like, yeah. 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 All right. Well, I guess. So is it true? Is it we'll true? We'll find out. We're going to find out. He could be a Dominican or maybe he's something else. Uh, maybe. Maybe he's a Franciscan. Uh, Jesuit? Uh, no, Jesuits don't have third orders. They wouldn't yeah. fight over him anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Nonetheless, uh, all of that coming up in this hour. So join us if you can. We would be very grateful to you. We're going to pray. We're going to get started. Uh, it is a pre-record today because we are off for the Holy Day of Obligation, going to Holy Mass. Hopefully you are as well. Uh, so no news on the program today. So if you tune in for the news, we have no idea what's happening today because we are off and we're just sharing with you some original content that you've not heard yet. So do sit back and enjoy. Let's pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, Never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thine intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy. 
hear and answer me. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Now your headlines. Actually, or rather, the saint of the day. The saint of the day. <laughs> the saint of the day was actually, it's the commentary on the circumcision of our Lord, which is traditionally celebrated yesterday, January 1st. This is the commentary from Professor Plinio on the circumcision of our Lord. Our Lord Jesus Christ was not obliged to follow that law because being the true God, he could dispense himself from the law he had made but he decided to subject himself to that law for the highest reasons. He wanted to show his love for the law as a reflection of his love for all laws, for the whole order he established in the universe, and for the authorities established to him by him to maintain it. Therefore, the man God made an act of humility and subjected himself to the law like any other was a prefigure of baptism and symbolized that the male child was purified and united to God on the eighth day following his birth. The divine child was presented in the temple and circumcised according to the law existing in Israel since the time of Abraham. On this occasion, he was given the name Jesus. There are three elements to consider when speaking of the law of God. First, there are the Ten Commandments God revealed to Moses. Those commandments were a codification of the principles of the natural law. Human nature in itself stipulates these ways of acting. Those rules were inscribed in the very nature of all of mankind, but as consequence of original sin and the resultant accumulation of hereditary sins, human intelligence lost its compass that pointed out what was good and what was evil. For this reason, God revealed the Decalogue to Moses as a summary of natural law so that mankind could better follow the right path. We must love the commandments because they are a summary of the natural order. They reflect the wise order God put in the universe and are, therefore, the proper expression of his wisdom and holiness. For us to have an appropriate idea of the eternal wisdom of God and its infinite holiness, we should analyze and admire the ensemble of the universe synthesized in the commandments he gave us. Second, by revealing the law, God raised those precepts to the plan, the plane of divine law. This is the second element, the supernatural character introduced in that synthesis of natural law. We must love these commandments because they were revealed by God. They are orders given by God. As long as we must love God above everything, we must follow his will and therefore obey the commandments. Third, our Lord was the perfect model of obedience, not only to the Ten Commandments, but also to all the detailed Mosaic laws instituted by God. His obedience was an expression of his love for the Eternal Father. The Gospel reports numerous times our Lord directed himself to the Father in expression of great love, union, and obedience, right up to the moment in the Garden of Olives when he said, Father, if thou wilt remove this chalice from me, but yet not my will, but thine be done. His last words were this, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. This was his last communication with the Father, an act of adoration, submission, and obedience. This was what our Lord Jesus Christ taught us from the beginning of his life at the circumcision until the end from the height of the cross. And the circumcision, he shed his first drop of blood for humankind. Many theologians sustain that with that simple drop of blood, the redemption of mankind could have been accomplished. But by the mysterious designs of divine providence, a great outpouring of his blood, his death, and even his last drop of blood that issued forth from the wound inflicted by Longinus' spear 
were necessary for our redemption. He accepted all of this to accomplish the will of the Eternal Father. We see how the spirit of our Lord is the opposite of the spirit of the revolution, which is a spirit of adverse to laws, without any love for the authority that legislates. It considers laws as shackles and obedience as coercion. According to this revolutionary spirit, man should revolt against the laws and follow only his own reason and instincts. On the contrary, our Lord gave us a profound counter-revolutionary teaching. His unremitted obedience to God, to eternal law, divine law, positive law, and all the customs established by tradition in the Old Covenant and by anticipation in the Catholic Church. This legacy should be loved in its letter and spirit. We should also love the civil laws insofar as they are a reflection or an application of the principles contained in Revelation, that is, in Scripture and tradition. Now, one could ask me, is this obedience to church laws valid in the, set, in the sad days in which we live, in the desolate situation into which the Catholic Church has fallen? I answer, yes, more than ever. But what laws should be obeyed? We must follow those laws which are in accordance with the perennial magisterium and tradition of the church. These are the laws that have the same spirit of our Lord. There are two forms of submission. One is to bend our heads as a sign that we renounce our wills to follow God's will alone. Another is to raise our heads to defend the will of God against those who want to impose something contrary to it. And this is the reading from the commentary on the circumcision of our Lord by Professor Plinio. May the sacred heart of Jesus have mercy on us. Amen. Praise be to God in all things. The gospel today comes to us from Matthew chapter 23, verses 8 through 12. This is the optional gospel for the day. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brethren. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called masters, for you have one master, the Christ. He who is greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. This is that famous passage that uh, all your non-Catholic Protestant friends and family members are going to throw in your face to say, See, Jesus says, call no man father, and yet you call your priest father. You're anti-biblical. Is that true? Well, there is some great commentary to be shared with you today. Cornelius Alapidae, uh says, God, therefore, is the only real father of all. For as much as he only gives soul and life, creates and preserves. In comparison of him, says St. Jerome, earthly fathers are only so in a figurative sense and ought not, therefore... Uh, instantly to command their children, but ought to submit themselves together with their children to God, the chief father of all. Close quote, Cornelius Lapide. Father McKeevely uh, wrote, and call no man your father upon earth in the sense of referring all we possess to them as the principal cause, vis-a-vis -vis our existence, our possessions, or all we hope for by way of inheritance. In this sense, we have but one father who is in heaven. To him alone are we uh, indebted for everything, our life, our persons, all of our faculties, our senses, our corporal and spiritual privileges, our claims to eternal happiness. It is the vainglorious affection of those and the other titles on the part of the scribes for the, for the purpose of pride and ostentation that our Redeemer here condemns, as opposed to the glory and honor of God, the great source of all good, of whom is named all paternity in heaven and earth. 
He, by no means, however, censures or prohibits Christians from bearing and bestowing in a dependent and subordinate sense these titles which superiority of office, station, or talent may confer, and which may contribute to the subordination due to others. Quote, as there is by nature but one God and one son, yet others are called sons of God by adoption. So there is but one father and master, yet others in a less strict sense and styled fathers and masters. Close quote, St. Jerome. Haydock's commentary points out, the meaning is that our father in heaven is incomparably more to be regarded than any father upon earth. And no master is to be followed who would lead us away from Christ. But this does not hinder, but that we are by the law of God to have a due respect both for our parents and spiritual fathers and for our masters and teachers. He goes on to say, but by no means the title of father attributed by the faith, piety, and confidence of good people to their directors for St. Paul tells the Corinthians that he is their only spiritual father. If you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet not many fathers in 1 Corinthians 4.15. So, if you ever come across somebody who says, see, Jesus says in Matthew 23, verse 9, that you're supposed to call no man father. Well, like, well, are we not to call teachers teachers? Are we not to call masters masters? You seem to give a pass to those two, but focus just on the father thing. And of course, we agree that anybody on earth, myself, if my children were to accuse me of not leading them to God, they would be correcting not calling me a father because a father's job is to lead to the true father. And if they are not leading you to the true father, then they ought not to be called father out of respect. And yes, St. Paul did call himself father. John wrote in his epistles to the fathers, our Lord and Savior referred to Abraham as father. So we see lots of use of the term father in the New Testament. So clearly our Lord must not have meant to strictly condemn the use of the word father in referring to people because who on earth would call not call their father father, right? So remember this the next time you face this situation, there's an answer, a good, solid Catholic answer for these accusations that are levied against us. Dig in, dive deep. So much in the commentaries that you can find that will enrich your life, inspire you, and give you the knowledge you need to give a good and ready answer for when that moment arises. Amen? Hey, don't go anywhere. Dr. Kwasniewski is going to come up next. What is the tradition and rupture in the church? It's all coming up next. This is Dale Alquist with a Chesterton Christmas Minute. G.K. Chesterton says that it is in the old Christmas carols that date from the Middle Ages that we find not only what makes Christmas poetic and soothing and stately, but what makes it exciting. The exciting quality of Christmas rests upon a great paradox that the power and center of the whole universe may be found in something very small, a baby in a manger. And it's extraordinary to notice how completely this paradox of the manger was lost by the brilliant theologians, but was kept in the Christmas carols. The songs recall the main point of the story, that God once ruled the universe from a stable, and that the hands that made the stars were too small to reach the huge heads of the cattle. Want more than a minute? Chesterton. 
www.thegoalfinancial.org. For victory in life, we've got to keep focused on the goal, and the goal is heaven. The key to winning is choosing to do God's will and love others with all you've got. Sacrifice, discipline, and prayer are essential. We gain strength through God's Word. We receive grace from the sacraments. And when we fumble due to sin, and it's going to happen, confession puts us back on the field. So if you haven't been going to Mass Weekly, get back in the game. We're saving your seat on the starting bench this Sunday. Welcome home. Praise be to Jesus Christ. Welcome to Catholic Drive Time. This is your producer, Adrian Fonseca. And today we're going to be talking about the book, uh, The Once and Future Roman Rite by Dr. Peter Kwasniewski. And hopefully I said his name right. Uh, I know that's a perpetual problem he has with everybody uh, pronouncing it a totally different way, but we'll, hopefully we'll be at least consistent. So today we're going to be talking about the book, The Once and Future Roman Rite, Returning to the Traditional Latin Liturgy After 70 Years of Exile. And I haven't yet finished the book. It's a giant tome. I feel like every time I'm like halfway through one of Dr. Peter's books, there's another one that comes out. Uh, so the it's, it's quite quite prolific. But I was halfway through with it, and I was this this is such a amazing tome. I, I cannot recommend it enough, but uh, Dr. Peter is with us today. Good morning to you, Dr. Peter. Good morning. Good morning. Praise be to God. So today, I know I, there's a lot of places that we could start, but I feel like the best place to start is from the beginning. In, the, in this top, you talked about tradition, and everybody's heard the word tradition, and people think of it in different ways. But you distinguish four kinds of tradition, and it's kind of weight. Could you talk about uh, what we mean when we say tradition, and, and what are the categories that you were breaking it down into? Certainly, yes, very good question, and, in, and, and a very fundamental question. Um, so the word tradition comes from the Greek word parodosis, which is Latinized into traditio, and it just means the, the handing down, or that which is handed down. Um, so it's, it's, it's actually quite a concrete image of one person, you might say, handing over a deposit, uh, something treasured to another person who's going to then keep it for him and hand it down to somebody else as well. So an inheritance, um, a transmission of a deposit. Uh, and of course, right away then we have to say there are different sorts of of, of um, deposits uh, or, or inheritances that the church has. She has what we call the deposit of faith. That is uh, what is divinely revealed, what is given to us by God himself, uh, and especially by our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and that is tradition with a capital T. That's the tradition that we say is, is, is one of the two forms of revelation. Scripture and tradition is, is a common phrase that you'll hear. Um, and that is divine, and it's unchangeable, it's immutable, right? It would include um, uh, really just about everything that we profess in the creed that we that we uh, pray together. But then you have uh, apostolic tradition, um, and that the theologians divide that into um, into uh, different types. We don't need to necessarily get into that. But apostolic tradition is what the apostles themselves instituted um, in the name of. Uh, Christ and after Christ. And then finally, you have what's called ecclesiastical tradition. Uh, and ecclesiastical tradition is really everything else that the church has devised, has added uh, in the form of prayer, in the form of art, culture, architecture, um, theological exposition and and development. Um, the church, of course, for 2,000 years has been pondering, like Mary in her heart, 
all that Christ gave her and has elaborated it in very helpful and beautiful ways. And so this whole body of ecclesiastical tradition is also something handed down and something very, very valuable that we should not um, hold lightly. Absolutely. And, you know, I was really struck like right at the very beginning of the book. And it just reminded me because, you know, we keep up with things going on in the Vatican and, and Pope Francis was talking about this, uh, this unknown saint to me. I'd never heard of him, uh, Saint Vincent Lorenz. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, I've never heard of this saint. I wanted to, to thank the Holy Father for bringing up this, uh, this great Holy uh, Church Father. And in the book, you quote him, you say, keep the deposit. What is the deposit? That which has been entrusted to you, not that which you have yourself devised a matter not of cleverness but of learning not of private adoption but a public tradition a matter brought to you not put forth by you wherein you are bound to be not an author but a keeper not a teacher but a disciple not a leader but a follower keep the deposit preserve the talents of the catholic faith inviolate unadulterate that which has been entrusted to you let it continue in your possession let it be handed on by you you have received gold Give gold in turn. Do not substitute one thing for another. Do not for gold impudently substitute lead or brass. Give real gold, not counterfeit. And that struck me because that's in 400 and they're already talking about issues of people wanting to corrupt traditions. And I guess it happened in our Lord's life too, saying uh, rejecting the traditions of man for instead hold fast to the traditions of God. Um, yes. What are your thoughts about that passage? Like that was so striking yes. to me. So St. Vincent of Lorenz is one of the greatest church fathers, one of the most important for Catholics to know. He's not great in the sense of Augustine. He didn't write a lot. He didn't leave a huge body of work talking about every doctrine and every heresy. But he left a very precious treatise called the Commonatorium. Uh, basically, it just means a sort of memory aid uh, in which St. Vincent says, I'm going to write down for you now basically how the Catholic faith is to be understood, how we know what is the content of the Catholic faith, what we are to believe and what we are to do. Um, it's a, Again, it's one of these very basic questions that all of us ask ourselves, especially in a time of confusion like the present. Um, and so then St. Vincent lays out uh, a bunch of what he calls uh, rules uh, for, under, for for knowing what is the Catholic faith. And he says, for example, we have to look to what is ancient we have to look to what is commonly received by everyone. We need to look at, um, you know, what is internally coherent at the teaching of councils and popes. So he, he lays out these basic rules, which have become norms for all theological discourse afterwards. Um, but the thing that's really wonderful about Vincent is he is passionate about tradition, about doing what has been done before, uh, and believing what has been handed down by those who came before us. He's absolutely against novelty. That's his big sort of punching bag. Is He's constantly uh, striking against novelty and innovation. Um, and and he, he helpfully distinguishes for us between uh, what you might call um, organic developments, things that, that uh, really are growths of a plant to a mature form. So it's the same plant or the same person, the same animal, but now in a more mature form, like an adult versus a, a child. Uh, and, and then 
things that are sheer innovation. That is, they never were taught before. They never existed before. Uh, they're, they're just something else entirely. Um, and, and this is the, you know, the somewhat unfortunate part about Pope Francis's invocations of St. Vincent of Lourdes is that uh, he often invokes him when when he's saying the opposite of what Vincent <laughs> is saying. You know, uh, so, so Francis will say, for example, uh, you know, as St. Vincent of Lorraine says, we should have development. And that's why I'm saying now that the death penalty is no longer admissible. And then you're, you're kind of left scratching your head because, because the death penalty is precisely one of those things that's always been taught as legitimate <laughs> for, for, the, for the entire history of, of Judaism and Christianity. Uh, and suddenly you have Francis invoking Vincent. I mean, this doesn't make any sense. Yeah, there's so many things there that, uh, that we could touch on. Organic development, um, the idea of, you know, as interesting, you mentioned uh, from since the Jews, because there's also a continuity with the Jewish faith and the Je Jewish temple worship and the church from us. But one thing that I want to uh, focus on is I have I have a great devotion to the Dominican spirituality, and I love St. Vincent Ferrer. And so I read a lot of his sermons that can be found online, and I was reading uh, his sermon on the Feast of Our Lady, and he, uh, in his sermon, he says, when you ask, how is it the proposed theme of today's gospel about the Virgin Mary, since it speaks only of the Blessed Mary Magdalene and Martha, therefore the text seems impertinent and improper today. And it struck me when I was reading that sermon that I was like, Oh, this is the this is kind of a mentality that he talks about because he's saying, no, you don't understand. The church chose these passages for a very specific reason. And don't think that you know better than the church as to say that these passages don't fit here. And he goes on to talk about how Martha and Mary perfectly uh, encapsulate the virtues of Our Lady, but them together, the active and the spiritual life. But most importantly, Martha chose the better and meaning our Mary chose the Mary better. Chose the yeah, better. Mary chose the better. And the, that's the contemplative life. And he uses that as a springboard to talk about Our Lady in that, in that passage. But it struck me because right. I'm like, this is what we did with the liturgy. We said, well, I don't get why we have it like this. So let's just do something else. Uh, what do you think yes. about that? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, there's um, there's a famous convert to the Catholic faith, uh, a, a lady. She was Episcopalian. Her name was Justine Ward. Um, she converted right after the turn of the 20th century, and she was famous for something called the Ward Method of teaching Gregorian chant to children. But I was just reading about her recently, and she she said when somebody asked her why did you convert to the Catholic faith, uh, you know, did you did you fall in love with it? Were you attracted to it? And she said actually. I wasn't really attracted to it emotionally. I was sort of dragged in kicking and screaming because I saw that I saw that that the the arguments, the the reasons for the faith were there. I had to accept them. Um, but she she makes this interesting point. She says um, that uh, there was almost nothing in the Catholic Church that I did not initially dislike because I did not understand it. Mm. But once I when, when I but by being patient. And by by striving to understand and by striving to live the faith, I ended up falling in love with all of these things that I initially disliked. Um, and I, I think that's quite true about traditional Catholicism in general. There are many things in it, whether it's the fasting and abstinence rules, the prayers at mass, the teaching on heaven and hell, the four last things, um, you know, the teachings about sexual morality. These are difficult. These are often difficult teachings for fallen human beings, and especially for modern people, because they go against our liberalism. But if we're patient, and if we allow our minds and hearts to be formed by the teaching and practice of the church, we end up discovering the immense riches and the immense wisdom in those teachings and practices. Um, and, and that, I think, is exactly 
the case with the traditional liturgy. You know, somebody initially goes to it and says, I can't hear what the priest is saying. He has his back turned to me. I, you know, what am I supposed to be doing for the next hour? I, I'm thrown upon myself. You know, the church isn't helping me. And, you know, there's, it's very tempting to want to complain this way. But no, no, no. Just, in a way, qu- be quiet. <laughs> you know, just kneel. Just start to absorb. And as time goes on, you will understand. You will understand. And this is how, this is how it is for me. Uh, now I absolutely love Everything about the traditional liturgy, down to its last little detail, down to the last rubric and, and gesture of the priest. But it, it's taken me decades to see all of these things, right? And isn't that beautiful? It's like a gift that you get to open for your whole life, and you never get to the end of it, you know? It's And, and then when in heaven, you have the eternal gift that you never get to the end of. So I think we, we have to be, we're so impatient, modern people, mm. you know, we want everything just instantly put on a platter in front of us, you know, and... And that's 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 unreasonable, especially when we're dealing with the infinite eternal mystery of God. Amen. Amen. That that's uh, like I said, like every single time I feel like every single point could be talked about for an hour. But the you know, one thing that struck me uh, what you're saying is, yeah, there's a lot of things in the mass that are very confusing to people when they first go. And uh, the one thing that's huge that people always bring up is the la- Latin language. And the two things that I was thinking of while thinking about the the question of Latin, I have a friend who uh, was uh, goes to the Ordinariate because we're in Houston, so the cathedral's here in Houston, and he was saying how, you know, I like the beautiful liturgies, I love it, but I'd rather go to the Ordinariate because at least I know what they're saying. And that, that it just kind of struck me because uh, there was two things. One is that John the 23rd, and you kind of mentioned uh, a little bit about John 23rd and Paul the Sixth, namely Paul the Sixth, about uh, a defender of tradition and and his ideas there. But John 23rd defended the use of Latin, the preservation of Latin, which kind of struck me. I didn't realize that was a thing. And I recently read his document on, on Latin language. But also while I was on vacation, I went to a Byzantine liturgy and but it was in English and when I was there the whole time the the deacon pops out from the back from the room screen and he says uh, he says quiet our family has spanned the centuries and the globe with God's grace we started hospitals to care for the sick we established orphanages and help the poor we are the largest charitable organization on the planet bringing comfort to those in need We educate more children than any other institution. We developed the scientific method and founded the college system. We defend the dignity of human life and uphold marriage. Guided by the Holy Spirit, we compiled the Bible. We are transformed by sacred scripture and sacred tradition, which have guided us for 2,000 years. We are the Catholic Church. With over one billion in our family, sharing in the sacraments and fullness of the Christian faith, Jesus started our church when he said to Peter, the first pope, You are rock, and upon this rock I will build my church. So if you've been away from the Catholic Church, we invite you to take another look. Visit catholicscomehome.org today. We are Catholic. Welcome home. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. We're currently cruising at 39,000 feet. We'll turn that seatbelt sign off for you and let you move about the cabin. Looks like we'll have you at the gate and plenty of time for you to get to confession before Mass this evening. Wouldn't it be great if everyone regularly went to confession? Why not start today? A friendly suggestion from Guadalupe Radio Network.
six, namely Papa Six, about uh, a defender of tradition and and his ideas <laughs> there. But John Twenty Third defended the use of Latin, the preservation of Latin, which kind of struck me. I didn't realize that was a thing, and I recently read his document on on Latin language. But also, while I was on vacation, I went to a Byzantine liturgy, and but it was in English. And when I was there, the whole time, the the deacon pops out from the back from the room screen, and he says. Uh, he says, quiet, pay attention, and but in English. And it just sounded so jarring to me that it was so familiar, so normal, so mundane. But he's also dressed in a very traditional uh, outfit. And me and my brother look at each other and we like stifle laughter. And I, that's not to be disrespectful to their liturgy or anything like that. And just the fact that it struck me how odd it is to have these sacred mysteries in the vernacular language. I, I want to get to your take on, yes. on that idea. Well, yeah. So one of, one of, one of the chapters in this book that we're talking about today, once in future Roman, right. Uh, that I, that I actually think is particularly important nowadays is the chapter 10 called uh, Byzantine Tridentine Montinian two brothers and a stranger. Uh, and what I do in that chapter is I go through and I, I compare how the Eastern liturgies and the Western, traditional Western liturgies match up in terms of all of their qualities and how none of those qualities are present in the Novus Ordo, or they're present in a feeble and imperfect and variable and changeable and uh, optional way. Um, and so one of the things I go into in that chapter is the question of language. Um, it's a bit simplistic to say, as people often do, that the Eastern liturgies are in the vernacular. Actually, in many cases, they're not. So in, in many, many cases, there are Eastern liturgies that have always been done in some kind of what we could call sacral or hieratic or ecclesiastical language. That is a language that's not spoken by the common man on the street and never has been. And that's, of course, true of the elevated Latin of the Roman Rite. That was never the vulgar language, never. Um, I get into that in the book. Uh, but it, it, but also of, of um, ancient Greek, the, the Koine Greek that the Greek Orthodox liturgy is still prayed in, uh, and the, the Church Slavonic that the Russian Orthodox use, um, and uh, and there are many other cases I, I list. I give a whole list of examples. So it's true that in some places the Eastern liturgies are done in the vernacular, but that's not a universal rule, and that's not a requirement on their part. Um, however, I think we just need to respect there are going to be differences in different traditions. Um, the Eastern Christians often seem comfortable doing their litur doing the liturgy in their vernacular, but if you look at the texts of the liturgy, they're very poetic and elaborate and symbolically saturated. They're, they're very rich texts. <clears throat> and so even when they're in the vernacular, <clears throat> you never get the impression that, that what you're doing is just something every day. Like this is something casual and something that the priest is improvising or that, you know, it's like the, the, the daily news. No, it's never like that. It's much more elevated and noble and dignified, even in the vernacular. And I think that's also what some people find in the Anglican ordinariate, right? There's a certain eloquence that you find there. Um, but Latin is the language of the Western church. It has been for over 1,500 years now. And that's not something that's merely accidental. That's not just some sort of accident of history. And the church said, whoops, we've been doing this for 1,500 years. I guess now we need to, you know, we, we, we were a little bit late, but, you know, I guess we should do it in the vernacular. No, I mean, John the Twenty Third says, this was by divine providence, this use of the Latin language. And what it's, what it's acquired over time 
is a kind of special, sacred, set-apart, transcendent feel or atmosphere uh, to it that once, when you enter into the Mass, you know, you're, you're, you're kneeling there in church and you hear the priest say, uh, in nomine patris et fini, et spiritus sancti, amen, intro ibo araltare dei, right away, you're, you're, you know that you're in the, the worship zone, so to speak, right? This is now, we're doing something now for God. We're, we're worshiping God and we're entering into it humbly and, and, and with devotion. The, the language helps us to enter into the presence of God, even when we don't understand every single word of it. Or when we hear the Gregorian chat beginning, the intro at the, at the Mass, it's the same kind of thing. It's like it, it makes a certain partition between everyday secular life, the profane, the profanum, that which is outside the temple, and, and the life that, that of, of worship that is looking towards heaven, towards eternal life. These, these kinds of partitions are really important for us as, as animals, as beings of flesh and blood and, and soul and mind, right? We, we need to have these these concrete manifestations of the differentness and the otherness of the divine in order for it to really be able to penetrate into our souls. Yeah, that's so much. Every time uh, there's so many different things you could pick up on. One thing that uh, I noticed that you had mentioned was the idea that some people will say things like, oh, well, you know, the church, like the East have been doing this and uh, this in some kind of a pseudo vernacular. And so the West, we got to catch up. We're going to, we are, we have been behind the ball. And I saw this a lot with uh, the apologia for the, the mass of Paul VI, uh, the, the new mass and people saying, uh, that I guess it was with the, the resource mont movement to say that let's go back to the sources. Let's go back to the way it was. So where, what is the distinction between a resource mont or maybe perhaps better better said a false antiquarianism and organic development or tradition <laughs> yes exactly well I mean, it's a complicated question but but an important one um so basically church history always shows you moments of resource mont if you mean by that term uh, moments in which people say we need to rediscover our sources. We need to go back to, we need to study the scripture more or better. We need to study the church fathers um, more or better. Uh, we need to discover other, you know, we, we need to rediscover what's been forgotten in the passage of time. And so every reform movement in the history of the church does have a certain um, not antiquarianism, that's a deviation, but a kind of attention being paid to uh, the ancient sources of the faith. And I think this is legitimate. This is quite legitimate. A, a parallel can be seen in the reform movements of religious orders, right? Every religious order, Benedictines, Carmelites, Jesuits, Franciscans, Dominicans, over time, they, they get corrupt. They get decadent. This is just a fact. This is what happens with fallen human beings, right? We all, we tend to go downhill. So, you, you know, the Dominicans, the Franciscans, they start with this tremendous fervor, and then they start, to, and then they decline, right? But God raises up individual saints later on who say, okay, time to reform the Dominicans, or time to reform the Franciscans, time to reform the Benedictines, right? And, and so something like the Cistercians are a reform movement of the Benedictines, and those reformers always, what do they always say? They say, let's go back to the sources of our religious order. Let's go back to our rule, our original rule, to the original people who lived it. Let's try to imitate them, right? So I think this kind of resource mont is entirely legitimate and, and healthy and good. The problem with antiquarianism is that it's a sort of arbitrary 
uh, leapfrogging over many centuries of of the life of devotion and prayer and theology in the history of the church. It leapfrogs over those things and dismisses them in favor of some kind of punitive, original, pure way of doing things. Uh, and and so it's 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 not like the other resource mod. It it has a kind of contemptuous attitude towards what has been developed legitimately in between, right? And so people people who do antiquarianism will say, well, um, in the early church, there's evidence that in some places they gave communion in the hand. And so and so even though for you know over a thousand years we haven't done communion in the hand, we're going to go back to that early custom because it must have been better. It's earlier, therefore it must have been better. And and there and therefore dismissing the reasons for which communion in the hand was stopped in the first place, right? And it's communion in the hand stopped happening because of abuses and because people saw that there was a better way of doing it. So earlier is not necessarily better, right? And this is something Pius XII brings out really well in his encyclical Mediator Dei. He says, just because something was done earlier does not mean it was better because the Holy Spirit leads the church uh, into greater and greater maturity of faith and expression of faith. So in the liturgy, especially, antiquarianism is very, very dangerous um, because so much of what we love and, and benefit from in our liturgy is the result of development that happens in 5th or 7th or 10th or 12th century, right, after Christ. There, you know, the, the Holy Spirit is always working in the church and raising up new, you know, new ways of praising God. Let me just give you a, a tiny example of that, right? The Palm Sunday liturgy that we all love so much with the the, the 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 procession with palms and chanting hosanna and then hearing the passion read right that is something that is a medieval development that's not something that ancient christians were doing right um but are we going to get rid of that because it's a medieval development no of course not right so the the liturgical reformers i'll just make one last point because there's so much that can be said about this the the liturgical reformers were very inconsistent in their antiquarianism, and that's what you always find. They they went back to the early church and they picked up things that they liked that kind of chimed in with their modern ideas, usually in the form of simplification or abbreviation or something that was a little more, a little less developed, let's say less, um, you know, they, they wanted, they were looking for something which was simple and abbreviated, so they went back to early things. But anything they didn't like about the early Christian sources, like the emphasis on fasting and abstinence and penance, which is huge in the early church and much more than it was later on. Oh, they just quietly pass over that. They don't want that. In fact, they go in the opposite direction. They abolish the fasting and the abstinence, even though that's the most ancient of all practices, right? So this is where antiquarianism completely self-destructs. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I hadn't really thought of that, actually, the fact that uh, the early church was incredibly rigorous in its disciplines and the idea that it would have been what if a confessor suggested scourging yourself as a uh, as a penance oh my goodness there would be riots in the street uh, but no are you looking for peace longing for joy want to meet the giver of all goodness god is calling the laity to bring ignatian prayer into a suffering world work for the new evangelization go to lordteachmetopray.com Order your free digital training and manual. Find true happiness and everlasting joy. Go to LordTeachMeToPray.com and click on the red button today. It's free. Approved by the USCCB. 
This is Dale Alquist with a Chesterton Christmas Minute. G.K. Chesterton says that it is in the old Christmas carols that date from the Middle Ages that we find not only what makes Christmas poetic and soothing and stately, but what makes it exciting. The exciting quality of Christmas rests upon a great paradox that the power and center of the whole universe may be found in something very small, a baby in a manger. And it's extraordinary to notice how completely this paradox of the manger was lost by the brilliant theologians, but was kept in the Christmas carols. The songs recall the main point of the story, that God once ruled the universe from a stable, and that the hands that made the stars were too small to reach the huge heads of the cattle. Want more than a minute? Chesterton.org the opposite direction they abolish the fasting and the abstinence even though that's the most ancient of all practices right so this is where antiquarianism completely self-destructs yeah that's a that's a good point i hadn't really thought of that actually the fact that uh, the early church was incredibly rigorous in its disciplines and the idea that it would if you what if a confessor suggested scourging yourself as a uh, as a penance oh my goodness there would be riots in the street um but no go ahead well let me let me just say i mean scourging you know like flagellation is more of a medieval penance but mm-hmm. um but an example would be this saint basil the great in one of his uh, writings he just matter-of-factly mentions as uh, without any sense of of this is extraordinary that that a woman who's had an abortion and confesses it has to do 15 years of penance okay 15 years of not receiving communion uh of which it's something like 5 years have to be spent outside the church begging for people's prayers and then 5 years have to be spent you know, like in the foyer of the church and then five years in the nave of the church. And then finally she can be readmitted to communion. Wow. Okay. That, that's how seriously they took the crime of abortion. Right. I mean, what is our problem in modern times? You know, it's, it's, it, we have no sense of sin anymore mm. and of the gravity of sin. I mean, this is Pius XII said the greatest sin of the modern age is the forgetfulness of sin. Right. Wow. This is something he said in a radio address. Um, so, I mean, really, you know, I'm all in favor of a healthy resource mall, but it has to be sincere and authentic and and serious, you know, and that's not what we saw after Vatican II. Absolutely. Absolutely. And one other thing, you know, you mentioned several times that a lot of these things are a it's a going like a a resource mall or a resourcement going back to the sources is more of a. Um, restoration of things that are good and not just like picking and choosing. And, you know, it just kind of reminds me, I've become over the last few years, a great devotee to Professor Plinio Correa de Oliveira and uh, Mr. Oreta's letters, uh, his, his several articles talking about uh, his thought and on this topic has really struck me as a, you know, that the, if the revolution is disorder, then the counter revolution has to be a return to order, which is Christian yes. civilization. And that yes. is such a wonderful articulation articulation that because we're not we're not trying to be revolutionaries we're not trying to fight against the church we that's not the mentality of being a traditionalist the mentality is being a yes. counter-revolutionary is wanting to bring about a return to order what are your thoughts exactly on that? 
Exactly. No, I, I totally agree with that. And in fact, um, you know, uh, Martin Mosebach puts it very well. He's an author I admire greatly. And he wrote the foreword to this book, for which I'm grateful. Um, he, he said in, in once that reform means return to form. That's what reform mm. means. So reform doesn't mean loosening up, relaxing, giving up all kinds of things, right? That's what it tends to mean nowadays. But what it means is tightening the discipline, returning to things that have been forgotten and neglected, right? It, it kind of means ramping things up. That's what reform really means. Uh, in you know, let's go back to what we have neglected. Um, and so uh, your point about counter-revolution, yes, what Catholic traditionalists are trying to do is not fight the church. We're trying to prevent people in the church from being suicidal, hmm. from, from self-destructing, right? We're, we're trying to prevent people from basically being like suicide bombers with respect to, to Catholicism, right? Uh, and so we're actually like the, we're like the, uh, law enforcement officers or the or the uh, emergency responders who are saying no no if you do that you're going to blow up right this is not going to work at all so we're, we're actually just defending the the um the tradition in the proper sense of the word Absolutely. Absolutely. I've been reading as I'm reading. I'd like to read multiple books at the same time. So I'm reading uh, the two timely issues that Mr. Odetta writes the forward to that the TFP yes. has put out. And it's excellent. And I want to get your thoughts on um, we're running out of time. Do you have time to stay a little bit longer? Uh, just just a, a little while longer, okay. yes. Yeah, the the one thing that I want to get your take on around his book, I haven't finished it quite yet, but the idea of the of a hyper papalism as as you call it versus an ultramontanism as Mr. Uretta defends. Um, what are your thoughts on the the role of the papacy? I just did a a podcast not too long ago. Uh, talking about how we should have great love and devotion to the papacy, given the example of Pius IX, how he started off as a liberal, and John Bosco saying, uh, telling his boys, don't say viva Pius IX, instead say viva the pope, viva the papacy. Uh, so you have to have a love and devotion to the, to the pope and to the papacy, but not necessarily recognizing that the, uh, the current occupant of the, of the papacy is a saint. Sure. Well, I mean, the fact of the matter is that in any Christian state of life, any vocation, any office that we could hold, um, there's there's a distinction between the office or the state or the vocation and the person who inhabits it. The person can be more or less worthy of that vocation or state or office, right? Um, and so when we pray for the Pope, as we're supposed to pray, we pray that he be delivered from his enemies. I mean, that implies that he might be attacked by enemies and that he might give in to enemies, right? So it would, there would be no point in praying for the Pope if the Pope was just sort of fused with his office into a perfect unity that was separated only by death, you know, and uh, and he could never deviate, he could never do anything wrong, imprudent, uh, erroneous, or whatever. But that's not the Catholic teaching. The Catholic teaching is that God gives him certain graces of state as he gives to all of us, graces of office, but that he is free to cooperate with those or not to cooperate with those. And a saintly pope is precisely one who does cooperate with God, and and, and a sinful pope or a mediocre pope uh, is one who doesn't, right? So I think the difference between Mr. Ureta and myself isn't really as big as it might seem on the surface. Um, I, I agree we should be definitely devoted to the papacy, the office of the pope, um, and that means being dedicated to to the proper functioning of the office of the Pope. What is the office of the Pope for? What is he supposed to do? He is supposed to be above and beyond everyone else, the, the defender of tradition, 
of Paradosis, of Traditio, that he's supposed to be the one who most of all humbly receives and passes on like a shepherd feeding his flock all that has been given and defends it against the evil assaults of the enemy, right? So that's that's what we see the great popes doing. And that's and if we have a pope like that, you know, I'm gonna be the first one cheering him on. You know, I'm not anti-papal in that sense, but I'm very much against the cult of a papal personality. I'm very much against the the idea of the superstar pope who just gets to redefine whatever he wishes about Catholicism. That's so antithetical to the successor of Peter, mm. you know, and to the vicar of Christ. He's not supposed to be some kind of, uh, you know, arbitrary monarch whose will is law, as Ratzinger once put it. Mm, right? Absolutely. So that's that's what I'm talking about. Really. Awesome. Thank you very much. And then uh, just two last questions. One is I want to get, I haven't finished your book yet, and your last chapter is on the, the your title, The Once and Future Roman Rite. So why is it that you titled it Once and Future Roman Rite? Obviously, immediately you're thinking of King Arthur, Once and Future King. Um, yes. So why that, that name? And then I have one last question for you after that. Sure. I mean, I mean, it's just the idea of the title came to me just because it seemed like a really nice way of saying that the Roman Rite, as it has existed in its unitary organic development over a period of over 1600 years, that this once upon a time Roman Rite that was basically uh, that, that an attempt was made to dismiss and, and bury in the 1960s, um, has not died, contrary to you know the predictions, uh, and it, it's in fact reflourishing, albeit under many challenges. And that it will be our future Roman right. That is, all the young, educated people I know, and I, I, I'm in touch with people from all over the world, and all the all the seminarians and clergy I've met under a certain age. They are either traditionalist in their mentality or they are sympathetic or they're moving in that direction. So I think what was the Roman right will, in fact, be the Roman right again in mm -hmm. the future. That's the once in future part. Um, the other point, just briefly, is that that last chapter is about the pre-55 um, condition of the Roman right. And I make the argument there, it's the longest chapter, um, but it, because it, it needs the attention, uh, the subject needs the attention, deserves the attention, but it's an argument that we, that the Roman right in its fullness is what you find in its Tridentine form, which is what, which is what was passed down all the way until the middle of the 20th century. Uh, and then there are, there begin to be these inexplicable, um, severe modifications made to the Tridentine Rite, as we could call it, or the Roman Rite, uh, under Pius XII, uh, that paved the way for what Paul VI did. And I, I make, I think, a pretty good case there uh, that we should return to the fullness of the Roman Rite, uh, which is to say it's pre-55 form. Uh, and this is not some kind of, some people say, oh, well, then where do you ever stop? What's your date? No, it's not about that. It's just, I'm just making the point that what you see in 1570 is a kind of pinnacle of everything up until that point. And from 1570 to the, the 20th century, you have quite a bit of stability. That's a period of great stability. I make the argument in the book, especially chapter two, that that's a positive feature, that it, it didn't change because it didn't need to change, not because it was frozen and ossified and, you know, people talk about these silly things. Um, and that, you know, the, the radical changes that began to be made to it are are really corruptions of that 
that liturgical form. So that's that's my argument. I, I give it in, in chapter twelve. Amen. Amen. That was that was really good. Especially I, I actually attended the pre fifty five liturgy Holy Week this last year. I drove out from Houston to Louisiana to go to the Institute of Christ the King there and I was blown away. I was absolutely, yes. I was just flabbergasted. I ended up afterwards ended up purchasing the, the book on the pre-55 liturgy. And I was just, just absolutely <laughs> stunned by everything. And I, I'm going to make sure that I, I go in the future to try to learn more about it. It's just so, yes. it's so profound. But uh, I want to, before I ask you my last question, uh, the people who are watching the once in future Roman, right? I cannot recommend it enough. I'm not even done with it, but everything we've talked about has been barely scratching the surface of like small sections of chapters. So I cannot recommend it enough. It's a must read for anyone who wants to know, know more about the traditional liturgy and, or even for those who are, who are kind of skeptical of the traditional liturgy and just want to explore the idea. I, I cannot recommend a better one-stop shop. I can recommend you 10, 20 other books, but this is the best book that I found that kind of covers everything all in one place. Um, so I cannot recommend it enough. And so the last question I have for you, is I kind of want your response to this um, critique. And so I have a very good friend, I won't mention his name, but he uh, put out this and tagged me in it, um, knowing that I go to the Trishra Mass. He was my uh, campus minister when I was in high school, so I've known him for a, a very long time, and we be, have a great relationship, so I have no disrespect. But um, he put out this, this kind of message against, uh, not against, but a critique of traditional Catholics. And I want to see what your, how you would respond. He said... For lessons for millennials and Gen Z, Catholic Traditional Latin Mass Special Edition. I love that so many of you young Catholics have found Jesus through the Traditional Latin Mass, but it's okay that the TLM is not my way of connecting with Jesus and worshiping him. I like to be able to hear and understand and pray in the only language I sort of have mastery in. This does not make me ignorant or nor a lesser Catholic, nor someone who is opposed to how you like to worship. I'm excited for you, and I'm also perfectly content with a very well-said Novus Ordo Mass. And I like that the readings are in the same ones I can find in my Magnificat prayer books. Don't try to convert me and don't question the Catholic stripes of those... Hi, I'm Debbie Giorgiani. And I'm Adam Bly. We're the hosts of The Spirit World every Saturday morning on the Guadalupe Radio Network. Join us as we help answer your questions on angels, demons, and how the physical and spiritual worlds interact. That's The Spirit World from the Station of the Cross studios every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Central, right here on the Guadalupe Radio Network. This is Dale Alquist with a Chesterton Christmas Minute. G.K. Chesterton says, All comfort must be based on discomfort. What's that supposed to mean? It has something to do with the fact that we celebrate Christmas in December. It is the feast in the middle of winter. We are choosing to be joyful at the very moment when the whole material world around us is most sad. We are defying cold death outside by celebrating life inside. And that's why there's nothing more comfortable than a blazing fire in the middle of a blizzard and why we bring a green tree inside and decorate it and talk of good cheer in the face of darkness and death. Tidings of comfort and joy. Because all comfort is based on discomfort. Want more than a minute? Visit us at Chesterton.org. Are you looking for peace? Longing for joy? Want to meet the giver of all goodness? God is calling the laity to bring Ignatian prayer into the suffering world. 
work for the new evangelization. Go to LordTeachMeToPray.com. Order your free digital training and manual. Find true happiness and everlasting joy. Go to LordTeachMeToPray.com and click on the red button today. It's free. Approved by the USCCB. Are you on the CDT Insider email list? Hi, Joe McLean here. And every week I send you cool stuff straight to your inbox. Goodies that you're not going to want to miss. Go to grnonline.com forward slash C. Hi, this is Larry Massey, owner of HolyBears.com and proud sponsor of AM 1430. KSHJ Houston, Catholic Radio for the Archdiocese of Galveston, Houston. recommended enough and so the last question i have for you is i kind of want your response to this um critique and so i have a very good friend i won't mention his name but he uh put out this and tagged me in it um knowing that i go to the trish for mass he was my uh, campus minister when i was in high school so i've known him for a, a very long time and we be, have a great relationship so i've no disrespect but um he put out this this kind of message against uh not against but a critique of traditional catholics and i want to see what your how you would respond he said for lessons for millennials and Gen Z, Catholic and Trish Latin Mass Special Edition. I love that so many of you young Catholics have found Jesus through the Trish Latin Mass, but it's okay that the TLM is not my way of connecting with Jesus and worshiping him. I like to be able to hear and understand and pray in the only language I sort of have mastery in. This does not make me ignorant or nor a lesser Catholic, nor someone who is opposed to how you like to worship. I'm excited for you, and I'm also perfectly content with a very well-said Novus Ordo Mass. And I like that the readings are in the same ones I can find in my Magnificat prayer books. Don't try to convert me and don't question the Catholic stripes of those of us who grew up with the St. John Paul II and the Novus Ordo Mass. If you do try too hard to convince others of your worship superiority, it strikes of Gnosticism. Not trying to shut you down as some bishops seem to be hell-bent on doing, but I do sort of understand where their caution comes from, though. I don't agree with shutting the Mass down at all, and I would defend your right as Catholics to go to the TLM. Out. Uh, so how would you respond to that in, uh, in charity, um, the, this kind of critique of traditional Catholics? Sure. Well, I mean, look, I understand. I, I, I always remind people that I grew up in a liberal Novus Ordo parish. I was in the charismatic movement. Um, I even wrote a guitar song. You know, I, uh, I, I, I provided music for the Novus Ordo for 20 years. You know, I know, I know that whole realm in its best and worst manifestations. And I don't judge anybody who whose only experience of the liturgy has been that. I think that when you discover the traditional liturgy and when you let it shape you and form your mind and heart, you discover such a depth, such a wealth, that it makes you excited about it. It makes you want to share it. It makes you want to bring in other fellow Catholics and say, look at what you've been missing. Like, I, I mean, I was missing it in my life. And when I discovered it, I realized how much I was missing. You don't realize what you're missing if you don't know it, right? Um, and so I think that we just, we need to respond to something like that by saying, you know, listen, brother, I, you know, I understand what you're saying. I'm not judging you. I'm not saying that your mass is invalid or anything or that you don't, or that it hasn't even improved you. I'm not saying that. What I, what I am saying is that something drastically wrong happened in the 1960s when the church so severely cut back centuries and centuries of her traditions and of the of the prayer the treasury of prayer that we had as catholics and that and that we need to recover this and it will be to your benefit and the benefit of the entire mystical body of christ if we recover these things right let me try to persuade you let come with me 
right? Give it, give it a chance. Um, give it some time, not just one time. That's not enough. Um, but just one. So that's what I would say. Um, one last point, though, is, you know, we have aids for the traditional Latin mass. We have something called Benedictus. I don't have a copy with me. It's over there. I'm not going to get up and, and play. But there's something called Benedictus, which is the equivalent of Magnificat for the Latin mass. And it's got, it, it comes out monthly in the mail, just like Magnificat. And uh, it has all the the readings and antiphons and prayers of the mass in English, very easily laid out, very easy to use. Um, tons of people, I mean, I've heard that well over 10,000 people are subscribing to Benedictus right now. It's a, it's a great tool. So there's no, there doesn't need to be even a barrier of understanding. But the mass is about so much more than just our rational comprehension, right? Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. Dr. Peter Kwasniewski has been our guest, and his book is The Once and Future Roman Rite, uh, published by Tan and Tan Books. It was an excellent read. I cannot recommend it enough. And just think about today. Think about today. What is the Mass for? Think about today. Is the Mass for me or is the Mass for God? And if it's for God, should we give him our best or should we just give him what we have? Let's give him our best. Let's, let's muster up everything we can today and give God what he is due. And he is due all of it because he created you. He loves you and he desires your salvation. So the least we can do is make a little couple sacrifices, make some things that are maybe difficult to us and offer up those difficulties to give God the greatest glory. God bless you. God love you. And we'll see you. Uh, to Jesus Christ. And that concludes our interview with Dr. Peter Kwasniewski. And that'll be posted later today or pretty soon recently. It'll be posted. But next up, we have our interview with Alan Smith with the with the Fulton Sheen today. He is going to be talking about some things about Fulton Sheen that a lot of people know nothing about. So you're not going to want to miss it. It's very exciting. And Alan Smith is a genius when it comes to Fulton Sheen. He knows everything. So we asked him about where his canonization process is at this moment. And he provides us with some enlightening information, something because he keeps up to date on this type of thing. We also asked him if he was a third order Dominican because I heard rumor that he was a third order Dominican. So we're going to be spilling the beans on that as well. We also discussed some other things about Fulton Sheen that some people may or may not have ever heard. So that's all going to be here. And Alan Smith is going to be answering all those questions. So you're not going to want to miss it. And without further ado, let's jump in. Now, uh, do you have any, uh, here's a question. Do you have any do you have any New Year's traditions that you and your family follow, adhere to, practice? Uh, no. Uh, well, although we do ask, um, you know, our children to make a, a resolve, a spiritual resolve, and um, to kind of have a theme for the year. And like, you know, one year we chose, you know, the cross and the seven last words. And then all of the whole year you kind of do that. And other years, St. Joseph. And then you make St. Joseph thing. So there's the suggestion, but then to put it in practice is a little bit different, right? I mean, this year it's the holy face. We're going to spend a lot of time on the holy face of Jesus. That's our New Year's resolution. Less sweets, more holy face. That's what we're doing. So my wife and I made a pact. Less sweets, more holy face. (laughs) It's it's a philosophy. Um, It's a rule of life. Less sweets, more holy face. Yeah, praise be to God. More holy face, yeah. Well, what is it? I saw a t-shirt that I'm coveting. Um, Mm -hmm. It was a t-shirt of a rosary and a picture of the holy face. And it said, the rosary is the weapon. 
the holy face is the remedy. Amen. And I thought of, yeah, the holy face is the remedy, the remedy for all that uh, ails us. So uh, it is the cure you, and uh, the remedy. So it's beautiful. I have, I have to send you, my little sister is uh, working on a painting of the uh, seven sorrows of Our Lady. Ooh. And at the base of the image, there is uh, the holy face. And it's very beautiful. My sister's been working on that for a little wow. while. His sister is an amazing artist. Yeah, she's absolutely mind-boggling. One of the first paintings she ever did was a portrait of Fulton Sheen that she gave to me as a gift. I'm not mm -hmm. allowed to show it to anybody because it looks awful. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, she, what, what kind of gift was this? <laughs> it was because uh, it was her first painting. Uh, so it wasn't very good. Got it. But uh, so one day I go into my room and the painting's missing. And I'm like... Where did where did my Fulton Sheen painting go? And I was looking around. I was like, mm. "Hey, mom, have you, have you seen my painting?" And she goes, "Oh, yeah." Emily was wondering if you would notice. She uh, took it down and hit it because she was like, "No one should see this painting. It Yikes. looks so terrible." So Yikes. it's it's, uh, it's currently missing in action. Ouch! Uh, hopefully, well, one day I'll get my Fulton Sheen painting back, or ask her to make you another one. Yeah, I can't afford her anymore. Yeah, that's the problem yeah. now, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Before she was cheap, but now yeah, I can't not afford anymore. Her. Yeah. Adrian, do you want me to send you my uh my Fulton Shane? Well we got an extra one. <laughs> you can put that up on the set there. Nice. <laughs> put that the backdrop there. That'd be amazing. I have more people saying, Can I have that picture behind you? That one that you got that you yeah. roll up and take down. Where I did want you that, have that, that Joseph Karsh one. It's beautiful. Where did you have it printed? Uh, Canada here. We just go to the local yeah. banner guy and say, here's $99, take it, and he prints the picture. But on the bottom of this one, I have to put courtesy of Joseph Karsh. Um, Got it. Any Karsh Foundation stuff, you have to give them the credit. Yeah. Um, well, they, they're very particular. Yeah, very easy to do. Praise be to God. So you, you had to contact them directly to ask for permission to print it? Yeah, because I, you know, I have a working relationship with the Sheen Foundation in Peoria. Um, they've made it very clear that anything that is Joseph Karsh, um, we have to sign off on. They gave us permission to use this stuff Good. for Sheen for Sheen business for Sheen business, yeah, right? Of course. So, yeah, praise um, be God. Yeah, so it's a good one. Yeah, it's we, not mass produced, is that's for sure. We use a company called Magic Murals at my house, mm -hmm. and we have uh, we built a uh, we built a room into a chapel at our place. And uh, so we, we use magic murals to have a huge crucifix up there. And it just it looks like a looks like an oil painting. It just attaches straight to the wall. It's like a big wow. sticker. It's like a giant sticker, but it, it's a reprint of an oil painting. So it looks like an oil painting. And then I built a wooden frame that goes around it, which I attached to the wall via command strip, you know, Velcro. So mm. when, when you walk in, you think I've got this big, beautiful oil painting, but it's very affordable, very easy to do. And then we went back to them. And we, we obtained, we purchased the license to a, a, a color pencil drawing of the Holy Family. And then we had Magic Mural print that up as well. And I built another frame for that. And that's up in our, in our upstairs on the top of the staircase. So great, yeah, great like ways the, to decorate The decal companies are amazing. Like they do like this decal of the Holy Face. Yeah. Um, and you can stick it on your fridge or your wall or whatever. I mean, beautiful. I mean, we're seeing people just with simple decals. You can brighten up your house and make it catholic yeah exactly you know, that's why i brought it up yeah. you know alan uh last time i went to peoria it was so sad i got there there was the the house that was um had all the fulton sheen had like their the blackboard and all these things and i when we got there 
there was a sign that had said that the per, the owner of the house had died like the week before, like a couple of days before I had got there. And I was like, oh, no. I mean, it's terrible that the person died, but I really wanted to get in there and see the, the chalkboard and yeah. all, all these other things they had there. So I went to the, obviously went to the one with the, um, at their cathedral, um, at their oh. chancery. So I went to that one, but there was a house there and I was like, darn, I really wanted to see that. It would have been so cool. So uh, yeah, in my, in my novice master, uh, Father Michael, he is also a huge um, devotee to Sheen, and he actually had tickets to go down to Peoria and had uh, got in a hotel like way ahead of time to for his canonization. And then uh, whenever it got pushed back and didn't happen, he uh, he was like, oh, I just threw away all that money. So yeah, all these things. What do you think about the whole uh, sheen yeah. canonization thing as of as of twenty twenty two, twenty twenty three? Well, I got an update. So people are always, I always get what's the what's the latest news? What's the update? So, um, Bishop. Tilka is the new bishop of Peoria, uh, Bishop Lou Tilka. Um, I still call priests by their last name. I can't be doing this, you know, Bishop Lou, <laughs> Father Joe. It's always like, no, it's it's Bishop Tilka. It's uh, Father Smith, you know. So, uh, But anyway, so Bishop Lou Tilka goes to Rome for bishop school. See, whenever you're a new bishop, you got to go to Rome and go to bishop school, right? And so what happened in September of this year, um, they, he went to, to Rome for bishop school but again the uh, vice the chancellor the uh the vicar and all these they went to rome too so we had a full court press with the folks in the vatican just to get an update to kind of say where are we you know because we were waiting for the two years in new york city well the whole new york state the statue of limitations we kind of thought let that go through let that expire nothing came up in the news and so at least it's nice peoria the officials of Peoria are meeting in the Vatican and going to talk about, let's get moving on this thing. So for years, it was silent. They, they wouldn't pick up the phone. Wow. <laughs> An answer. But now, you know, the bishops there, the, the chancellors there, some of the staff from the diocese are there. And so we had a good conversation with the Holy Father and also uh, the representatives uh, in the dicasteries in Rome. So let's just say we, we had some dialogue and it was positive. So um, before we had no dialogue, yeah. we were just kind of going in the right direction. That's, right. That's wild. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so we, I yeah, think that. there's, I think there's some legitimate criticisms to be made on the canonization process that has developed post Vatican II. It seems that it has become very political. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't like the idea of getting rid of the devil's advocate. I think it's a, that's a yeah. bad sign. It seems like how much lobby power do you have in order to get your guy or gal through the process? That's what the Jesuits were famous for. Even before, even before all this happened, um, before the changes with the devil's advocate, the reason why there were so many Jesuit saints is because the they Jesuits had lobby, power. had lobby power. But not only that, they also had a whole um, job among the Jesuits, whose their only job yeah. was the promulgation of Jesuit saints. Yeah. So they'd pursue the canonization, whereas Dominicans were notorious for not. It, you know, even though the individuals might still have merit and virtue, it's going to sow the seeds of doubt in the, in the hearts of the faithful because of the process being so seemingly yeah. political. Lose. You know what I mean? It's like, again, there seems to be clear upsides here. Why is Fulton Sheen not getting through? 
Why is it Merry a blessing Merry Christmas Why from the Guadalupe Radio Network on, in Houston. I'm General Manager Tim Mott, and there and is one saint, very important thing that I'm going to shout from the rooftops, uh, well, from the radio, and from your GR and phone app from now until I can't shout anymore. The incarnation changes everything. Deus Homo Ut Homo Deus. God became man so that man might become God. Go look it up. That's what we celebrate on Christmas, and thank you for listening to the Guadalupe Radio Network. To be canonized. This is Dale August with a I mean, Chesterton Christmas minute. It's become it's a bad habit in our society to celebrate Christmas but it just seems totally before it comes. We've um, forgotten that, the that, glory of that's anticipation. That's confusing and the divisive, I think, for the body. should not be opened until Christmas. It's, it's, it's that, a of course, very, is part uh, of the excitement. Stringent process. Like and I while mean, we know the gifts are coming, Chesterton reminds years, us that um, the best kind of gift with is the surprise and, gift. And, I mean, they took 10 and years if we have the right perspective, we should look at everything as a gift. And every gift as a surprise gift. We are happy to wake up on Christmas morning and find said, gifts in our stockings. You know, and they had to study it, and it took them the 10 years. And Father Andrew Apostoli, uh, God rest his soul, he was our, our vice postulator. He said, if you want to become a saint, want more don't than write 66 books. <laughs> <Visit> our <laughs> 20 years of radio <laughs> and television. Um, because it takes time. Yeah. So when Pope Benedict the oh, 16th come, let in us 2012 adore him. Hi, this is Dave Palmer. Doesn't that um, perfectly describe our disposition during this Christmas season? We have the honor of being able to adore the Christ child at Christmas and adore him throughout the year of the Blessed Sacrament and receive him at Mass. And what a blessing also that we can tune in to the GRN any time to keep our minds focused on our Lord Jesus Christ and his Holy Church. Merry Christmas and a blessed new year to you and your family. That went through all the medical reports of the baby that was dead for 61 minutes and came back to life. And so, of course, after reading all the medical reports, they then sent a record or a note to the Holy Father saying, this is a miracle, so let's approve it. And, of course, it sat on the desk of the Pope for a couple of years. But, again, to have that team of doctors to say, yeah, the Vatican has doctors that look through this stuff. And so uh, when they declared the miracle approved, we thought, finally. And then it was that last little hurdle to get over, you know. Yeah. And that's where I think the politics of the church and different things but um, the Positio, which is behind me here, there's a big red book here. It's 2,000 pages. It's all just testimonies of Fulton Sheen's life and uh, people that, you know, swore had sworn affidavits to say he was a man of sanctity. And I think you just watched the videos and mm. the clips. You just see he carried himself well. He, he yeah. loved our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and was truly not into himself but into serving others. So um, I think this is why I think we all kind of say, He's a saint, even though the church hasn't officially declared him a saint. So, yeah. um, you know, again, there's work to do, and um, I'll let the evidence speak for itself. But um, again, at the end of the day, I believe him to be a saint in heaven. I'm sure many of your <laughs> listeners uh, feel the same way and the viewers. So, it's Alan, all good. Uh, real it's quickly, good. before we say goodbye, do you know, and I think I may have asked you this in the past already, but I'm going to ask it again. Um, is there any truth to the claim that Sheen became a third order Dominican in his life. 
It was a third-order Carmelite, and that was uh, uh, that's actually in the book, The Treasured Love Story. Uh, Fulton Sheen gave a series of uh, talks in Ireland to celebrate the 100th anniversary of St. Therese's death. And so, um, and then the, um, the rector of the uh, church in Ireland, who was a good close friend of Fulton Sheen, um, it shows right in that book that he is a, th- a professed third-order Carmelite. Oh, wow. And Fulton Sheen loved, um, he loved the Carmel. He would visit the um, the monasteries and all the communities. Again, he'd ask the sisters of Carmel to pray for him. So uh, it, is, it is on record that Fulton Sheen officially uh, was a third-order Carmelite. And you're allowed to be a Carmelite, even if you're a bishop and an archbishop, a third-order Carmelite, that is. So uh-huh. um, so that's it. That's there awesome. I'll send, you the, I'll, I'll, send you the, I'll send you the evidence. Okay, so please do. Yeah, that's awesome, because it's funny. Yeah. The, uh, the Dominicans of the Eastern Province... Because, you know, there's that famous photo of yes. Fulton Sheen giving the, the blessing to the Third Order Dominicans. And did, did he do the, the, their ordinations? Is that what was happening during that day? Or was it yeah. just a blessing? Was it well, that was, he, was giving a retreat, he was giving a retreat to the Dominicans. And uh, so after the retreat was over, then they wanted a picture of him giving a blessing. And so he gave a blessing. And then, of course, they found those priests uh, many years later and took a picture again mm. of the priests that were still surviving, like still alive. But the Dominicans love that picture and they use it all the time. And in fact, they did a great video. Uh, uh, it's called The Art of Preaching. The Dominicans uh, put this together, and it's Fulton Sheen's address to them. He was giving a retreat to the Dominican preachers on the art of preaching and the importance of preaching Christ and Him crucified. Great video to watch. Again, The Art of Preaching by Fulton Sheen. Uh, but the Dominicans always love Fulton Sheen. They like to claim him as his own. Yeah. And everybody likes to claim Fulton Sheen as their own. Yeah. Uh, he gets hijacked all the time, right? Yeah, um, right. But that's okay. He doesn't mind. It's all to bring souls to Jesus. So it's yeah. really funny. The Dominicans, the Eastern province, because they, they had the photo up at the, in the novice house. And uh, like I said, the novice master, who was a big, big devotee to Fulton Sheen. But it's funny. There's a, several stories that circulate among the Dominican friars about Fulton Sheen, because apparently he would visit the house of studies while he was teaching at CUA. He'd visit the house of studies constantly because he was right across the street from them. And there's a, that's where the rumor that he became a third order Dominican came from. But the other thing was, Apparently, there was a uh, a Dominican priest who was an excellent preacher, amazing preacher, and uh, he would go and he'd preach, and people would come up to him and be and tell him, "Father, you're such an amazing preacher. You sound just like Fulton Sheen." And uh, he says, "No, my child, Fulton Sheen sounds like me." I taught his class. I taught him, and I thought that was the funniest thing ever. I thought that was hilarious. Now, the the greatest lesson was um, the the story of uh, Lesueur, um, the great um, story of I think it was Elizabeth Lesueur who suffered a great deal under a, a, a husband that was an atheist and a very anti-church, and she used her suffering to pray for his conversion. And on her deathbed, she says, "Honey, I've suffered enough now." to uh, ransom your soul and that you will become a Dominican priest uh, when I die. And um, of course, uh, she did die and he went to Lourdes and he had this beautiful conversion experience and he became a priest. And uh, Fulton Sheen says one of the best retreats he ever received 
was from a father Lesur, and he would say, and my wife would say this. And so to hear a priest uh, give <laughs> something and say, and my wife told me this. Um, but again, she had paid this beautiful price, this ransom for a soul, and of course, a great Dominican preacher. So Father Lesur, um, that's one Sheen story that is told often. But again, everybody loves to uh, claim Sheen as their own, and uh, you're more than welcome to. So it's Dominicans, <laughs> Carmelites. Um, and of course, in the traditional movement in the Latin mass community, uh, of course, they love Fulton Sheen. So um, again, his writings are so uh, beautiful. He yeah. loves the faith. And in fact, uh, the Book of Sacraments, which is included in one of the anthologies I put uh, together, the Sheen Book of Sacraments, it's, be, it's the 1962 stuff. I always say it's the right right. It's before <laughs> they change the right. So when I give the book away, I said, okay, here's Sheen's books on sacraments, uh, but it's the right right. It's the one you're going to enjoy. <laughs> Because I think Fulton Sheen knew things were changing. So mm-hmm. he put together his catechism, he put together his book of uh, the sacraments, and he wrote a book on the priesthood, all before Vatican II uh, started to really uh, settle in and the spirit of Vatican II took over, right? So yeah. uh, Fulton Sheen was warning us to say, remember tradition, remember tradition. And uh, so I'm glad. Yeah, but we, st- don't, we don't love that last interview he gave to uh, Buckley. Buckley. That was a rough one for traditional Catholics. Yeah. He seems to have yeah. embraced the spirit of Vatican II pretty hard at that point. Yeah, and I think well, it's, well, yeah. one of the things I want to say about Fulton Sheen is I love him. Uh, not, maybe not as much as Adrian does, but I, I absolutely love him, and uh, he has had a profound effect on me as a Catholic. And it's a struggle because Fulton Sheen was an old school, old world Catholic in the sense that you don't air dirty laundry publicly, uh-huh. and so there was so much that he was dealing with on the download. That was the Belladad problem too. We talked to Ken Gore about that in 2022, and you know it's like college you whiz. I mean, just call a spade a spade. I mean, shine the light. Let's stop letting them do these quiet deals behind closed doors. I mean, the, the roaches are still running around. For, we got to deal with this. And he was, he was, that's just not how you did it in the old days. You kept everything quiet. You kept it out of the public eye. You tried to avoid that public scandal. But it seemed in doing that, the scandal got to keep going. Like we didn't actually, we didn't actually vanquish the darkness it, the darkness is still there. So it, the question in my mind became, all right, Fulton, I understand that you, why you why you didn't let Belladad come out. I understand why you dealt with your own scandals, like uh, the bishop in Rochester or the bishop uh, being the bishop in New York not liking you and, uh, and and working against you, and you kept that quiet, kept it on the down low. But at the end of the day, what was the greater scandal? The public sin of the scandal, or what? What is it? Was it the fact that that group got to continue? Uh, the the shenanigans got to continue on, and the and the uh, the darkness got to continue because we didn't uh, open this stuff up to the public opinion back then. I don't know if you have any opinions on that. Yeah, I mean, first of all, we didn't have the media um, reach that we have now. Um, what was happening in the nineteen fifties, nineteen forties? The media coverage was limited. If sometimes non-existent, um, and who even had access to media. Um, to have the paper delivered to your house every day was a luxury sometimes, in yeah. some places. So uh, getting up to uh, snuff with all the news was kind of difficult, even in the 40s and 50s. I mean, now everything's instantaneous. We know what they had for breakfast over in Russia. You know, it's kind of, um, it's 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 sad. We have too much technology, I think. And I think we're, we always want justice. We, we demand justice now. We live in a world that is looking 
looking for, you know, um, I could say good and evil to be, we coexist, I guess, but there's still a right and a wrong. And I, Fulton Sheen, of course, would always preach that, uh, a wrong is a wrong, even if it's always wrong. And, you know, the right is the right, uh, when we got to do right or whatever. I don't even know the, yeah. the quote, but you know what I'm kind of saying there. Yeah. But I, I, I mean, I get, I get choked up too when I hear the stories of Belladad and the communists infiltrating the seminary and I see what's happened to the church and I go, wow, why didn't somebody say something? But again, all I know is that it's this, I wrestle with this all the time, this word obedience. <laughs> and maybe I shouldn't be, you know, the obedience, but, um, Fulton Sheen was obedient. He was loyal to the Pope. He was loyal. Again, if the bishop said go, he'd go, he'd be go where he sent. Um, so it's, I don't understand it fully. Maybe I have to pray about it some more, but that whole word obedience. And, uh, we hear that now, you know, obey, you have to obey. Well, obey what, you know, what law, the higher law that, you know, it's an, a whole conversation altogether, but I have to say Fulton Sheen was obedient. But again, I think he thought there was more value of not airing dirty laundry and trust and try to convert the soul. I mean, when he met Bella Dodd, he addressed her as Dr. Dodd. He says, nice to meet you, doctor. Thanks for coming to see me. Because he was looking in to try to save her soul. And that was his whole focus, was to save her soul and the soul of, souls of others. And I love to say that Fulton Sheen took Bella Dodd from being a communist to make her a communionist mm -hmm. that she loved to receive the Eucharistic Lord. So, um, again, I think his focus was on soul and not exposing uh, yeah. the rot that was out there. So, I and don't know. The, the fact that uh, he was there to provide last rites miraculously, like she was in a coma and she came mm -hmm. out of that coma to receive last rites from him. I mean, mm -hmm. it's pretty miracle. It's a pretty amazing story just to, to, to see that. Yeah, unless souls are saved, nothing is saved. And I think that was Fulton Sheen's focus. It was about saving souls every day. And so um, unless we save souls, nothing is saved. So yeah. uh, anyway, maybe a good way to end the show. Yeah, unless amen. souls are saved, nothing is saved. So yeah, um, there we go. All right. Well, God bless you, Al Smith. Thanks again for being on with us, hanging out with us today on our last show of 2022. Uh, Merry Christmas. Happy New Year to you and to everybody. Uh, there are changes coming in 2023. Some are going to be good. Some are going to be rough. Uh, some are going to be easy. Uh, nonetheless, God is good all the time. And let's focus on saving those souls. That's the mission. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year, everybody. And we'll see you in 2023. Thank you for joining us on Your Catholic Drive Time where it is our pleasure to keep you informed and inspired. Join us Monday through Friday at the same time, right here on your favorite Catholic radio station. Don't forget to connect with us. Just go to facebook.com forward slash Catholic Drive Time. Again, that's facebook.com forward slash Catholic Drive Time. Be sure to share more than just us today. Share Jesus with everyone you meet. Bye now, and God love you. Guadalupe Radio Network now brings you the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass from the chapel at Our Lady of Corpus Christi in Corpus Christi, Texas. Today we celebrate in this Christmas tide the feast, uh, the, sorry, the memorial of Saints Basil the Great and Gregory Nazianzen. The intention for today's Mass is for all of our online viewers and for those joining us through Guadalupe Radio. Please stand and join us in singing Good Christian Men Rejoice. 
Good Christian men rejoice with heart and soul and voice. Give ye heed to what we say. Jesus Christ is born today. Oxen ass before him bow, and he is in the manger now. Christ is born today. Christ is born today. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. My brothers and sisters, let us acknowledge our sins, and so prepare ourselves to celebrate the sacred mysteries. You were sent to heal the contrite of heart, Lord, have mercy. You came to call sinners, Christ, have mercy. You are seated at the right hand of the Father to intercede for us, Lord, have mercy. May Almighty God have mercy on us, forgive us our sins, and bring us to everlasting life. Let us pray. O God, who are pleased to give light to your church, by the example and teaching of the bishops, Saints Basil and Gregory, grant, we pray, that in humility we may learn your truth and practice it faithfully in charity. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever. Amen. A reading from the first letter of St. John. Beloved, who is the liar? Whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ, whoever denies the Father and the Son, this is the Antichrist. Anyone who denies the Son does not have the Father, but whoever confesses the Son has the Father as well. Let what you heard from the beginning remain in you. If what you heard from the beginning remains in you, then you will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made us, eternal life. I write you these things about those who would deceive you. As for you, the anointing that you received from him remains in you, so that you do not need anyone to teach you. But this anointing teaches you everything and is about everything and is true and not false. Just as it was taught you, remain in him. And now, children, remain in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be put to shame by him at his coming. The word of the Lord. All the ends of the earth have seen the saving power of God. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done wondrous deeds. His right hand has won victory for him his holy arm. The ends of the earth have seen the saving power of God. The Lord has made his salvation known. In the sight of the nations, he has revealed his justice. He has remembered his kindness and his faithfulness toward the house of Israel. The ends of the earth have seen the saving power of God. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation by our God. Sing joyfully to the Lord, all you lands. Break into song, sing praise. 
the ends of the earth have seen the saving power of God. Alleluia, 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 Alleluia. In times past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets. In these last days, He has spoken to us through His Son. The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. Glory to you. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to him to ask him, Who are you? He admitted and did not deny it, but admitted. I am not the Christ. So they asked him, What are you then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. They said, so they said to him, Who are you? So we can give an answer to those who sent us. What do you have to say for yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the desert, Make straight the way of the Lord. As Isaiah the prophet said, some Pharisees were also sent. They asked him, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ or Elijah or the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. But there is one among you whom you do not recognize, the one who is coming after me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to untie. This happened in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. The readings during this Christmas tide remind us of a great theme that St. Paul spoke about in his writings. Says, we have been made sharers in the divinity of Christ, who humbled himself to share in our human nature, in our humanity. For our fathers in the East, including the ones we celebrate today, St. Basil the Great and St. Gregory and Nazianzen, they understood this, this as being like what they call divinization or deification. We, have become, we can become like God through his grace, beginning, of course, with our baptism. And this is why the readings today both focus, even the reading from the first letter of John and the Gospel of John, on baptism. John the Baptist had come to baptize in order to prepare the people. It was a sign of repentance. But he says, one is coming after me who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And that's the anointing that St. John talks about in that first reading, that we have received the anointing of God by which we can recognize him, and not only just recognize him, but be able to live like him. So baptism, of course, cleanses of, our, of, of, of us, cleanses us of original sin, but it also anoints us with the Holy Spirit so that the Holy Spirit who resides in us, by the Holy Spirit who resides in us, we can be divinized, become like God. I think when we look at the effect of that, we see that through baptism in the Holy Spirit, we become friends of God. And as St. John will remark here in a day or two in the readings, that we are to love one another. 
to love is a sign that we have been transformed and divinized by God. We see this, I think, very beautifully in these two saints that we celebrate, St. Gregory Nazianzen and St. Basil, because they shared a deep friendship, a deep friendship, what we could call, what we call in our lady society, through our founder, Father James Flanagan, graced friendships, graced friendships. We are all in need of these types of friendships, friendships that are based on grace, friendships that lead us closer to Christ. We all have friends who we, ex we exchange differently, we talk about different topic topics and so on and so forth, but sometimes even with those who we would consider to be friends, when it comes to talking about spiritual things, spiritual things in our life, we probably we might get a bit uncomfortable. We might think, well, they're going to think I'm weird, or you know, we usually don't talk about these things. But this is where grace friendships is so powerful, when we have somebody that we could share what is going on in our going on interiorly in our walk of faith, and then for those to be able to support us. As I mentioned, Basil and Gregory exemplify this in such an extraordinary way. We hear in the office of readings how they're, they're, they both they were very extremely smart, <laughs> they were extremely intelligent, and you know when it comes to that area of learning, it's easy for people to be envious. All you have to go do sometimes is, is go to a doctoral dissertation and you start to see how the professors are trying to one-up one another, you know, to say that they're smarter than the other one. But what, what was really characteristic about these two was that their true ambition was for wisdom and true wisdom. St. Gregory Nancy and says, the same hope inspired both of us, that is the pursuit of learning. This ambition is, is, is subject to envy, yet between us there was no envy. Our rivalry, he said, consisted not in seeking the first place for oneself, but in yielding to the other. For we each looked out for one another's successes and looked at them as our own. Where on earth does, that, does this kind of transformation come? It comes through the grace of Christ. To love one another, as Jesus says, as I have loved you. Jesus, when he loves us, there's no rivalry. <laughs> there's no envy, no ambition. He simply loves us because he wishes to love us, and we're lovable. And in return, we are to love God and to love our neighbor, especially to love God because he's lovable, not because he necessarily does good things for us, but that he's lovable. And this is what you see between these two men. Our single objective and ambition between the two of us was simply virtue, such that we, they said we followed the guidance of God's law and spurred each other on to virtue. And we found in each other, in fact, a standard and a rule for discerning right and wrong. Gregor Ganzianzen ends by saying, our great, our, great, our great pursuit, the great name we wanted, was to be Christians, was to be called Christians. You see how the relationship is not one based on need or clinginess. It never really focused so much on each other as it was turned out and focused and oriented, directed toward God but together. This is, the, this is the great blessing that graced friendships brings. It is, again, through grace that we would have these kinds of friendships. So let us ask the Lord, especially this new year, that we would have this kind of friendship with someone in our life that will spur us on to virtue, spur us on to really live our faith more deeply. To end, yesterday, one of my confreres here in Corpus Christi uh, every, every New Year's Day, 
he has a he comes up at the end of mass with a bag and in a bag is our little slips of paper with different saints and he invites every one of his members of his congregation of the parish to come and to put to, to put their hand in the bag and to grab a saint because that is going to be the saint that they are going to ask for their intercession and to journey with in this year so every year they have a new saint somebody that they become spiritually a deep spiritual friendship with that is another way that we can live out this grace friendship with the saints we ask the lord to help us to uh, to live our friendships our grace friendships deeply in our life and that the grace of god may transform us indeed divinize us to become like god In this sacred time, when the goodness and kindness of God our Savior have appeared, let us, my dear brothers and sisters, humbly pour forth to him our prayers, trusting not in our own good works, but in his mercy. For the Church of God, that in integrity of faith she may await and may welcome with joy him whom the Immaculate Virgin conceived by a word and wondrously brought to birth. Let us pray to the Lord. For the progress and peace of the whole world, that what is given in time may become a reward in eternity. Let us pray to the Lord. For those oppressed by hunger, sickness, or loneliness, that through the mystery of the nativity of Christ, they may find relief in both mind and body. Let us pray to the Lord. For our families and for all of our friends and in, in our congregation, that receiving Christ, they may well also learn also to welcome him in the poor. Let us pray to the Lord. Let's pray for the repose of the soul of Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI. All who have died, all the holy souls in purgatory, that they may rest in peace. Let us pray to the Lord. Finally, we pray for the intentions that we hold in our hearts. Pray for those who are joining us online and through Guadalupe Radio. With their intentions when this Mass is being offered, we pray to the Lord. We pray, O Lord our God, that the Virgin Mary, who merited to bear God and man in her chaste womb, may commend the prayers of your faithful in your sight, through Christ our Lord. Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation, for through your goodness we have received the bread we offer you. Fruit of the earth and work of human hands, it will become for us the bread of life. Blessed be God forever. Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation, for through your goodness we have received the wine we offer you. Fruit of the vine, a work of human hands, it will become for us our spiritual drink.
pray, dearly beloved, that my sacrifice of yours may be acceptable to God, the Almighty Father. Accept this sacrifice from your people, we pray, O Lord, and make what is offered for your glory in honor of Saints Basil and Gregory a means to our eternal salvation through Christ our Lord. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is truly right and just our duty and our salvation, always and everywhere to give you thanks. Lord, Holy Father, Almighty and Eternal God, through Christ our Lord. For through him the holy exchange that restores our life has shone forth today in splendor. When our frailty is assumed by your word, not only does human mortality receive an unending honor, but by this wondrous union we too are made eternal. And so in company with the choirs of angels we praise you and with joy we proclaim Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. You are indeed holy, O Lord, the fount of all holiness. Make holy, therefore, these gifts, we pray, by sending down your Spirit upon them like the dewfall, so that they may become for us the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. At the time he was betrayed and entered willingly into his passion, he took bread and, giving thanks, broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take this, all of you, and eat of it, for this is my body, which will be given up for you. In a similar way, when supper was ended, he took the chalice, and once more giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take this, all of you, and drink from it, for this is the chalice of my blood, the blood of the new and eternal covenant, which will be poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in memory of me. The mystery of faith, save us, Savior of the world. For by your cross and resurrection, you have set us free. Therefore, O Lord, as we celebrate the memorial of his death and resurrection, we offer you, Lord, the bread of life and the chalice of salvation, 
giving thanks that you have held us worthy to be in your presence and minister to you. Humbly we pray that partaking of the body and blood of Christ, we may be gathered into one by the Holy Spirit. Remember, Lord, your church spread throughout the world and bring her to the fullness of charity, together with Francis, our Pope, and Michael, our Bishop, and all the clergy. Remember also our brothers and sisters who have fallen asleep in the hope of the resurrection and all who have died in your mercy. Welcome them into the light of your face. Have mercy on us all, we pray, that with the Blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of God, with Blessed Joseph, her spouse, with the Blessed Apostles, and all the saints who have pleased you throughout the ages, we may merit to be co-heirs to eternal life and may praise and glorify you through your Son, Jesus Christ. Through him and with him and in him, O God, Almighty Father, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all glory and honor is yours forever and ever. Amen. At the Savior's command, and formed by divine teaching, we dare to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Deliver us, Lord, we pray, from every evil. Graciously grant peace in our days, that by the help of your mercy we may be always free from sin and safe from all distress, as we await the blessed hope and the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Lord Jesus Christ, who said to your apostles, Peace I leave you, my peace I give you. Look not on our sins, but on the faith of your church, and graciously grant her peace and unity in accordance with your will, who live and reign forever and ever. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Let us offer each other the sign of peace. Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world. Have mercy on us. Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world. Have mercy on us. Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world. Grant us peace. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold him who takes away the sins of the world. Blessed are those called to the supper of the Lamb. Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word, and my soul shall be healed. We proclaim Christ crucified, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God.
For all those who are not able to receive our Lord in the sacrament of Holy Communion at this time, we invite you to pray an act of spiritual communion with us. My Jesus, I believe that you are present in the most holy sacrament. I love you above all things, and I desire to receive you into my soul. Since I cannot at this moment receive you sacramentally, come at least spiritually into my heart. I embrace you as if you were already there, and unite myself wholly to you. Never permit me to be separated from you. Amen. Of the Father's love begotten, ere the world began to be, He is Alpha and Omega, He the source, the ending He. Of the things that are, that have been, and that future year shall see, evermore and evermore. O that birth forever blessed, when the virgin full of grace, by the Holy Ghost conceiving, bear the Savior of our faith. And the babe, the world's redeemer, first revealed his sacred face, evermore and evermore. Amen. Let us pray. May partaking at the heavenly table, almighty God, confirm and increase strength from on high and all who celebrate the feast day of Saints Basil and Gregory, that we may preserve in integrity the gift of faith and walk in the path of salvation you trace for us through Christ our Lord. For the final blessing, wish everyone who is joining us a very blessed Christmas and a happy new year. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Go and announce the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God rest you, merry gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay. Remember. The Prayer to St. Michael. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, 
cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. Prayer of Deliverance Almighty God and Father, we beg Thee through the intercession and help of the archangels St. Michael, Raphael, and Gabriel for the deliverance of our brothers and sisters who are enslaved by the evil one from anxiety, sadness, and obsessions. We implore Thee, deliver us, O Lord. From hatred, fornication, and envy. We implore Thee, deliver us, O Lord. From thoughts of jealousy, rage, and death. We implore Thee, deliver us, O Lord. From every thought of suicide and abortion. We implore Thee, deliver us, O Lord. From every form of sinful sexuality. We implore thee, deliver us, O Lord. From every division in our family and every harmful friendship. We implore thee, deliver us, O Lord. From every sort of spell, malefice, witchcraft, and every form of the occult. We implore thee, deliver us, O Lord. Thou who said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, grant that through the intercession of the Virgin Mary we may be liberated from every demonic influence and enjoy thy peace always. In the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Transmitting the treasures of our Catholic faith to your radio every day. This is the Guadalupe Radio Network. Radio for your soul. Has Catholic Radio blessed you? Bless a friend. Tell them to listen to AM 1430 KSHJ Catholic Radio for Houston.